Hi, this is Roberta Fallon, and I'm here today with Lee Tussman. Hello. Hi, Lee. We are going to talk today. Lee's an artist and a curator. He's based in Philadelphia right now, although he spent time elsewhere, like in California. Right? And New York and many places. Global. Right. Global. So um, in addition to being an artist and curator, Lee makes music and is sort of a hacker dude. <laughs> and I think that's so interesting because what we're going to talk about today is his new curatorial project that involves, I don't want to say hacking, but it's digital media of some sort and a combination of music and art. So it's actually fairly analog, but is um, it analog? Yeah. But I, yeah, I'm happy to talk a little bit more about it and, and get into the details of, of kind okay, of what we're doing, so too. It's called Room 21, and it, it's a kickoff performance at the Barnes Foundation in the atrium um, for the Fringe Festival. Right. On uh, Friday, September 9th. At what time? Uh, it starts at 8 p.m. is when the performance starts. Uh, you can come as early as 7 p.m. and actually go through um, the Barnes Foundation and check out Room 21, which is one of the rooms in the collection to get... Um, to see the kind of inspiration for the project. Okay, and that's all for $10 admission, right. including the Barnes right. collection? Yep. And what's the URL for the project? It's room21.org. Okay, and that's 21.org. Right? right. Okay. So tell us about this. I know you got uh, funding from the Pew, from PICA. Yes, it's supported by the Pew Center for Arts and Heritage, and it's a project working with the composer Jace Clayton, who is also known as DJ Rupture. Rupture, that's a great name. Right. Everything is about disruption these days. So does that come out of that? He's disrupting DJing? I think so, but I think he's also showing these disruptions and, and ruptures. And I think his, his whole career, what's attracted me you know, to his work is drawing connections between um, these different uh, um, paths um, that popular culture and music and art has taken. Um, which is increasingly true today. Right, it's all overlapping. And your project overlaps. You're at the Barnes. It involves a DJ, but it also involves Ars Nova. Ars Nova's uh, been working on the project with me, um, uh, helping to produce the project. And um, yeah, working with them has been really great. Okay, so I read online that the Prometheus Chamber Orchestra, are they part of Ars Nova? Uh, no, they're, they're their own ensemble, and they're actually entirely member-led, um, as opposed to having a conductor. Um, they're a fairly young ensemble, but a large one, um, and the full ensemble will be participating. We actually have 20 musicians um, that are participating. No kidding. Um, so it, the, uh, the piece is written and choreographed by Jace Clayton himself, and um, we also have... Uh, Gazachu Habtamariam, who's an Ethiopian musician and singer who's playing the masinko, a stringed instrument. Emily Manzo is a keyboardist and piano player from New York City. Baby Copperhead, a.k.a. Ben Lee, uh, plays banjo um, from New York City. Um, we have vocals from, we have a vocalist, Eric Rath, who will be playing the part of uh, Albert Barnes, so oh. to speak. Um, maybe I'm revealing too much. Oh, no. Reveal. <laughs> because I still can't imagine what it's going to sound like. And are they going to move? Is this going to be right. a procession? So, well, there is there is movement. There is procession. Maybe I could talk a little about the germination of the project, which might help um, yes, I think reveal help. quite a bit about what's going on. Yeah. Um, originally, um, 
you know, I, I've been very familiar since I grew up in Philadelphia and have been, uh, you know, someone that's visited museums my whole life, very familiar with the Barnes Foundation, um, even, you know, before when it was in Marion, and I used to visit as a child. And I know, uh, I think a good deal about the collection. I've always been an art lover and always considered it really unique and it was, you know, have been inspired by the salon style hang and, and you know, kind of the... I, I would call it almost a democracy of the way, you know, within the way that the work is presented. Um, and DJ Rupture is someone I've listened to for a long time as a DJ, and then through his other uh, projects, Nettle, um, and other and other performances and, and and ensembles he's been a part of. He's someone that I, you know, I think is uniquely suited to work with music, uh, you know, popular culture in the United States, um, European classical, um, you know, African, South American, Central American musical traditions. As a DJ, he brings these different traditions together and shows connections, um, shows the path of, I think, musical culture and then as well as kind of overall, um, you know, society and culture as well. So he was someone that I have always been interested in, um, both as a, as a musician and DJ, um, a, a writer. He writes for uh, many different magazines and journals. Um, he just wrote a new book, Uproot, which just came out last week. And um, he's someone that I thought was uniquely suited to being able to do a project to, to draw a connection between the various cultures, artistic um, and, and cultural, that are part of the Barnes Foundation's collection. So you brought him over to Philly? Right. So he, uh, he's based in New York City. Um, we, through a long process of uh, you know, kind of discussion and visiting the collection, um, came up with a kind of a genesis of an idea. But through that process, I don't know how many um, listeners know about the archive of the Barnes Foundation. Tell us a little bit okay. about the archive then. So the, the archive is, is large. Um, uh, thousands if not millions of feet of of items and, and and think of the kinds of things that could be an archive there's letters from albert barnes car you know there's correspondence from him from him sales there, slips yep sales slips records um lots and lots and lots of kinds of things in his handwriting and other people's too and um barnes employed lots of people um to collect art to um to do research and that's all part of the archive as well and there's a there's a whole archival team as well that's part of the Barnes Foundation. And through the process of getting to know them and talking with them and kind of investigating first his letters to see what he had written about music, um, we found there's actually a ton of material about Barnes and music. And um, one, of the, one of the big discoveries, um, not a discovery for them, but a discovery for us was that there's a vinyl collection and that Albert Barnes collected vinyl um, and had quite a collection, um, a very extensive collection um, uh, dozens, you know, uh, of albums, um, which actually make up, if you think of an album, some of them are multiple discs, you know, vinyl discs. So hundreds of actual vinyl records. Um, also learned that Albert Barnes created playlists. Um, this is, you know, 2016, and I'm talking about a, you know, a playlist in, you know, the 1930s and 40s, um, which I think is, which is fascinating, 50s um, as well. And uh, he had, you know, written notes of these playlists, and they're they're eclectic. They sometimes are, you know, classical music playlists, but there's also ones that include spirituals, um, and classical music and folk music. Right? There's these different, um, you know, these playlists that show these connections between different cultures. That's, you know, 
So kind of like his wall ensembles for art, he right. was making ensembles of music. Right, and and Jace Clayton was interested in it almost as a kind of mixtape too, right? I mean, that's maybe not the right language for that era, but um, you know, we could we could think of it in that kind of a way. It's you know, it's certainly in the culture of sampling, and um, and re- you know, remixing isn't exactly the right word, but kind of creating a playlist and and putting it together as another kind of curation as well, and. Um, so this became something that was that helped kind of spark a lot of different ideas for this project. You had no idea that Albert Barnes had a connection to music when you went into this. No, I, I, I didn't know the extent of it. I certainly didn't know he had vinyl albums. Um, he's also he had he would bring musicians to perform and play. Right, he'd have violinists come and play. There were music education classes. Um, he had ideas on music that should be paired with art, for example. Mm. These were all things that, um, that came out of this research process that helped um, spark ideas for Room 21. Very cool. And so when Jace came over, he was, how did he uh, set himself a room as kind of a locational right. anchor for what he wanted to do? When Sometimes it's hard for me to remember the first time I stepped into the Barnes Foundation. Um, but one of the things that I think about sometimes is, in some ways, even though it's, um, it's a, you know, a single person's collection and it's a very personal collection, we sometimes forget that, it also can feel, in some ways, it's very intimate and in some ways it can be very overwhelming, right? There's a lot of, there's a lot of things in one space. Um, and I think it particularly sticks out to me because you can compare it to later museums. You know, over time, modern art museums got into this certain flow where they tend to be, if you think about it, a single work with lots of white wall space around it. And Barnes was working kind of before that became the norm or became the um, you know, accepted uh, modus operandi of uh, museums. So it takes a very different tact, a different approach. And so it can feel very overwhelming. Room 21 itself is a room that's uh, much more intimate. It's a room that's off to the side um, inside the museum, and it can serve, in some ways, it's served as a little microcosm for us of the entire collection. It has um, African cultural objects, masks, and other items. It has Amish craft work. It has European single ar- artist masterworks, such as um, Digliani. It also has artwork from students at the Barnes Foundation, right? Because, you know, the Barnes Foundation. Um, it's all about education in many ways. And so it actually has student paintings in that room as well. It has sacred works. It has profane works. Um, it's an intimate room that packs a punch. And, um, you know, that, was, that, that room served as a genesis for many of the ideas here. That's really great. So um, I don't remember if I asked this before, but I'm going to ask it now. Do sure. you have any idea what this is going to sound like? You, you mentioned there may be movement, maybe some procession. Yeah, there's been rehearsals, and there continues to be rehearsal. Um, I, I don't know if I want to reveal too much about it. Um, you know, there are 20 um, musicians involved in the project, and um, they come from different musical and cultural traditions that we'll be playing together. Um, one of the ideas is that the um, using the as inspiration the vinyl collection of Albert Barnes, Jace, you know, has studied the the works that are in that collection and has incorporated the, um, those songs um, into the music that we played by the different musicians. And so initial ideas were to um, take those different you know, musical traditions, those musical pieces played by different groups of people, and that they, um, it might start dis, uh, you know, in disparate 
um, sections and, and smaller groups and then um, form together over the course of the piece, um, which in many ways is analogous to the collection itself where you you know, have these different individual elements, a single painting here, a Medigliani, a Matisse, a Picasso, um, a dresser, a chair, and um, over time a logic um, is suggested to you and um, that was, you know, put together by Albert Barnes and in this way, you know, Jace Clayton has, has created his own logic to, um, to weave that work together. Very cool. Um, and the vocalist, who is Albert Barnes perhaps? Well, there's, might, yeah, I'm sorry. I, I don't know, he might conduct the, uh, the coming together of, well, he'll I'm be, yeah, associating here. Sure. Well, so there's, there's several different vocals going on in the piece, um, but the, uh, there is a uh, part spoken by Eric Rath um, that will actually read the contents of Room 21, and that will be part of the piece as well. The titles of the pe pieces. Right, information on them? the, yeah, information on the. On oh, the, like from those cards they have? Right, right. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. Is someone recording this for posterity? Because this is a one-night-only event, right? It's one-night-only. Um, uh, yeah, it will be recorded. And one of the unique parts of this process is that after um, the performance on room21.org, there will be a portal to access additional information and actually to access um, you know, an archive of the performance. And this was inspired by an idea um, where we have um, examples of letters from Albert Barnes um, in the archive of the museum. And uh, people would write re and request access to the collection. And so um, people will have to write to Jace Clayton, um, and he will grant um, access to the collection. Uh, to, to, I'm sorry, to the archive of the performance. Okay, you're talking email, not like snail mail. Yeah, yeah, this will be email. So there's <laughs> there are some differences. Uh, the other thing that we kind of thought was funny, there's all different kinds of letters in the uh, archive. Sometimes, I don't, do you know this, that sometimes you would have a letter written by his dog? You, have you seen this or uh, heard no. of this before? I yeah. have not. So, uh, you know, he uh, was a man with an eccentric personality, perhaps. I'm not totally sure, but yeah, sometimes he might have his dog write back to someone request when they requested access. Uh, we're not going to have that, <laughs> as far as I know. Um, but we will, yeah, there'll be a link to, to request access to the, to the archive after the performance. Very cool. Yeah. You're going to have some visuals on there, too? Right, of, absolutely. Of the art itself, and or maybe just a snapshot of Room 21? Yep. Because some people won't have been to the barns. Right. Right. I think it's entirely conceivable. Right. I think this, um, you know, I think, it, you know, we're in an era with, of the Internet, obviously, which, you know, permeates our culture. Um, Jace Clayton writes a lot about, you know, the Internet's influence on popular music around the world and, and even traditional and roots music as well. And um, it's playing, certainly playing a part in, in this performance project. So um, let's talk about the audience. Who do you envision as the audience for this. Do you have any idea how many people are signing up for tickets? Because I think you can do that already, right? Yeah, it's tickets are available for sale. Um, you can get them from um, the Barnes Foundation on their website. You can also get it from the Fringe Festival. This is the opening um, night you know, performance, September 9th, for, which kickstarts the Fringe Festival um, by Fringe Arts. Um, you can also find a link to tickets at room21.org. Um, yeah, tickets are already selling. Seems seems to seems people are interested in ter in terms of you know who's interested in the audience. I think it's it should be fairly broad. I think increasingly, you know, I found as an artist and curator that um, we live in a culture where we we have these um, kind of blurring of categories and people are multi 
disciplinary now, right? Um, artists are musicians, musicians are artists. Um, people that might not even use the word artist to describe themselves or musician are making music and uploading you know, photos to the internet. And I think we live in a, um, a culturally rich world. And uh, I, I think the interest in this should be fairly broad, both for people interested in, in contemporary music, but as well, um, you know, classical music, um, experimental music, um, art lovers, people that want a different way to see the collection. I think this will um, give another lens and frame to the collection. Yeah, what's well synesthesia? Right. Seeing things through your ears. Right. Isn't that the mix totally. up of the senses? Right. And I, I think, um, I think in increasingly it's the kind of way that people are accessing and, and, and interested in art, looking at you know, different ways of, of experiencing museums. You know, the Barnes Foundation is unique from other museums. They do have a, um, uh, changing special exhibitions, but they also have a permanent collection that doesn't change, right? And so this is a different way to, um, to contextualize that collection and understand it and think about it in a different kind of way. And make it come alive. Right because I think that could be an issue for some people. It's a lot of dead, it's all dead artists, right? Right, right. So um, will the audience be sitting? And I'm sorry to be so micro-focused oh, no, here. I, I yes. Just, I know the atrium at the Barnes. The atrium's large and we'll, space. yeah, so um, Jace Clayton noted that um, in many different paintings throughout the exhibition, there are these like divans with odalisk figures um, reclining. So we will actually have, um, we'll use couches at the barns and um, your, your audience is welcome to stand and perambulate, you know, walking around as the musicians will do, um, or they can sit, um, you know, and uh, experience You're gonna it. hire some odalisks? <laughs> I think that would be really cool. That would be pretty funny, <laughs> yeah. So, um, and how is, uh, DJ Rupture doing with the classical musicians? Has he worked with, uh, I mean, his instrument is turntables. Has he worked with classical musicians before or any? He has, yeah. He's done a lot of projects um, with all different kinds of ensembles. He's worked with, you know, he has a, uh, he's worked with ensembles in the Middle East and Africa, um, Europe, the United States. Um, yeah, I think he has an interesting, I think his background as a DJ, um, brings him a kind of a unique perspective and a different way of working with people um, rather than just, you know, maybe sitting down and writing um, music, maybe, which is maybe not even accurate. My, you know, I'm, I'm kind of making this up in my own head how a, a composer traditionally works. Um, there's been more back and forth and, um, you know, we've, we've had a number of rehearsals. So um, this is very yeah, exciting. I think it's exciting. Do you think you'll do this at some other time in some other museum? I mean, it seems really like a good paradigm for decontextualizing or bringing a new context totally. to art? Totally. Well, I think this project, you know, Room 21 itself is very site-specific, mm -hmm. and it doesn't really work in any other museum. Mm -hmm. um, that said, I think this process and a project of this type where um, using music and performance to um, either to enhance or to kind of re-examine a collection, um, I think is, is a model that can be followed and used in a lot of different kinds of ways. Yeah. Yeah, I think so too. It's very fertile for that. Absolutely. Um, anything else you want to talk about this uh, project, Room Twenty One? Otherwise, I want to switch to your own art. Uh, I just wanted to note one thing that I think is kind of, you know, maybe one thing for audiences to pay attention to when they're when they're visiting um, to attend Room Twenty One or listening to it in the archive later. Um, 
you know, you can, there's these adjacencies when we look at the, at the um, collection at the Barnes Foundation, you know, and what I mean by that is, you know, what work is next to what other work and next to another work. And that will happen musically in the piece. And I think it also happens in the instrumentation and personnel selected as well. So for example, there's banjo, guitar, masinko. These are all stringed instruments that have a shared common heritage. Um, and uh, I think it'll be interesting to kind of trace that um, in, the, in the work itself. I want to say adjacencies includes Jace's name in it. Right. Did you realize that? <laughs> That's really great. Um, yeah, I'm very excited about this. I have to get my ticket so it doesn't get sold out. Right. And I can't get in. Everybody get your tickets now. And they're $10. Which is right, or actually, they're eight dollars for museum members at the Barnes Foundation. Eight dollars. Wow, that's that's really great. Um, okay, so let's talk about you. You have a very robust website that has lots and lots of projects listed on it, and a couple of them are curatorial. There's quite a list of curatorial right. projects, but the ones that I want to talk to you about are your art projects. Okay. And a couple of them caught my eye in particular, and they seem to have a lot of at least this one has some humor in it, um, but it's also very crunchy digitally. And this is Lee Tussman for you. Ah, uh, yes, that's uh, you know, and I have a, a number of recent projects that I haven't put up yet, just because they're very recent, and I've been working on this other project. But they they need to go up. That is one of my more recent ones. Yeah. So, can you describe it a little bit? Yeah, it's a um, it's a well, it's a spam email account that I created. And um, wait, stop. Yeah. How does one create a spam email account? Okay. Well, if I want to go back in time a little bit, um, a few years ago, I started curating video games as art and working with um, people outside of the world of mainstream and AAA games, and curating these projects. One of them was called Punk Arcade, um, which has been presented at Little Berlin in Philadelphia, um, Vector Festival at Ontario College of Art and Design in Toronto, um, at UCLA in the Game Art in the um, art, um, in the game lab um, as part of and uh, you know so I that's had a number of permutations and during that time you know I, I've increasingly been, been been kind of curating and then creating new media work and I became interested in learning to program and so a number of years ago I I started studying and, and learning to program and integrating that into my artwork as as another media what languages um, uh, initially processing um, and over time, um, you know, JavaScript, P5.js, which is a library in JavaScript. Um, I do Python, um, maybe other ones as well, um, depending on the project. But um, so, yeah, I, I, uh, that's a, that's a, uh, so Lee Tussman for you is a spam email account. You can actually sign up for it, but I also just, used my email address book as already exists and started sending spam out to people. Okay, and then what happened? Well, so let me specify a little bit. The, uh, the spam is, I've been using, you know, I've, I've been an internet user my whole, you know, almost my whole life. I'm old enough to remember before the internet, but also, you know, used the internet starting at maybe 11, which was right before um, we had browsers, right? So I actually used um, the text-based internet. Um, uh, telnet and bulletin board systems and then I went to the library when I was a kid and I got a book on how to use the graphical internet so I've been an internet user for a very long time and had an email address even as a child 
which I think is kind of funny. In That's the, precocious. Probably. This was in the kind of maybe early to mid-90s. Um, and uh, so anyway, but in 2004, I think it was, Gmail was introduced. I, saw, I was one of the, you know, I don't know if I was one of the first out of just a few, but, you know, out of thousands of people, I, I got a Gmail address, and I've been using that ever since. And so um, I basically downloaded every email I've ever sent, which took a long time. And I, I fed that information. It's called a corpus. You know, it's a collection of text. And I fed that to a program that went through that and on the fly creates new email based off of my previous email. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. It's like a cuisine art. It takes your corpus of emails. Right. And it kind of chews them up and spits out something new. Right. It's like a word salad or um, you can think of it as like Brian Geisen's, um, you know, cut up text poems. Um, maybe even like Naked Lunch, right? But it's, it's doing it with my personal email. And so it, it does that essentially. It chops it up, makes new emails, and then sends it to people in my address book. Uh, the first version that I made um, ran for about 24 hours and then got shut down by, by Google. Um, I don't totally know how they caught it. And I'm thinking bec it might have had um, characters that they recognized were probably not from a human. And it might have been too regular. I think I had that one send on the hour. So then I made another version that's more um, ambient, shall we say, or appears to be slightly more human, and that one still goes occasionally. Yeah. You I can turn it on and off? I, it's just going. Yeah, it's on. Okay. I could turn it off. Well, the thing that um, if you you really need to see this, right. um, on if you go to Lee's website, you'll see that this project also has a visual component so you can create, is this the same project? Yes. Which one? The one that creates the spam uh, mirror portrait of you. Oh, that's a different project. Oh, that's a different project. Right, yeah. All right, what's that one? Well, that was, um, that was actually, that one's a little bit of an older project. That is a uh, project that I wrote in processing. Um, and it goes online. You type your name in. It goes online. It you know, does a Google search on you. It scrapes the text from that, and then it creates a portrait of you out of the text that's found about you on the internet. So it's a visual. It actually looks like you, but you're made out of you know, text, ASCII characters, and that text is what it's found about you. Or if you know, I have a unique name, so if you Google me, it's just me, but if you have maybe a different name that might be more common, um, it'll find information on other people. So these are mischievous, and it, it strikes me that only someone who isn't terrified by the flood of email that comes into their email inbox right. could turn email into something as mischievous as this. Yeah, I actually, you know, I had, um, I've, I, I've had people email back and they asked, is this, is this spam or you hacked? Other people knew what it was instantly, I think. Um, I had someone, when I told them about the project, when I explained what it was, was really mad and said, well, why would you create more email? And was, was pretty pissed, actually. Um, yeah, I would, that's, the, <laughs> that's the default reaction. Right. It was a mentor people. of mine, actually. You know, the funny thing is, I didn't think about this before. I, so I've done a lot of digital projects. Um, I, I have had other new media projects. And this actually grew out of this kind of series of projects where I've attempted to create a robot version of myself. Um, and this is this was one of the things that grew out of that initial idea. A virtual robot or a physical robot? Uh, both. I've been interested in a lot of 
kinds of things of, of kind of multitasking and, and the overburdensome nature of digital life today. So this was one of the, you know, some of these projects have grown out of that. That's great. I've done things like hire doppelgangers of myself to go to events. Um, I did an exhibit in the spring and I had masks of my face available so that people could um, take a picture, you know, a selfie essentially, but tag me <laughs> in the image on, on you know, Instagram or, or uh, Facebook and I would come up. You're just having too much fun. Well, I think, you know, art, the arts can be really serious and I think... Um, it, I think it's nice to have a little bit of humor injected sometimes. I I totally agree with that. Um, on the other hand, yeah. you are an educator. Right. You've done some teaching. Yeah. So what do you teach? Uh, I tend to teach the intersection of art and technology and new media, um, web media, game design. Um, you know, those are areas that I'm passionate about. I particularly like teaching, um, you know, how computation and, and programming can be used by artists to people that have no background or experience in that. Um, that's been a that's been something I've really enjoyed working in. Do they need to have a good grounding in mathematics or no. foreign language understanding of foreign languaging in order to do processing things? Oh, I don't think so. No, I don't think so. I think um, you know, and you can delve in lightly or deeply. It's like any other medium, mm -hmm. and I think it's one that's increasingly artists are attracted to as an area rich and ripe for exploration, and, and, it, and there's many ways you can take it. I know you're all embroiled in Room 21 right now, right. but what's coming after Room 21? Uh, I'm working on some of my own projects, so I'll be excited to get, get back to that, um, have some exhibitions. Um, do you need a studio, or do you just I work have a studio. Have I'm a mostly studio. working on the computer, but yes, I do have a studio. Um, uh, the other thing is I've been working on an exhibition called Music Scene, um, which would be a touring exhibition um, of uh, visual artists responding to um, music. So, you know, I'm very much interested in kind of these connections between visual art and music and, and, and many ways of exploring that. Hmm. Where's that? When is it going to happen? That's still in the early Genesis period right now. We're still um, figuring out the venues as well as, um, you know, all the artists for that one. All right, so um, what's the future of music? Oh, is man. it online? Is it digital? What, I don't what's know. going on with music? <laughs> is it like books? Instruments will never go away? The way books will never go away? You know, I'm not sure. I, I think it's a tough one. Um, you know, music's always been a part of our culture. I don't just mean us, everyone, uh, history of humanity. Um, there's even evidence that animals, you know, make, obviously animals make sound, but there's evidence that they do it for pleasure as well. Um, we'll always have music and it'll always adapt and respond to culture and, and, and as well as shape culture. Um, I guess we have voices. We'll always be able to right. vocalize music right. of some sort. Yeah, I don't think I can predict even a few years in the future what's going to happen. Um, you know, we're certainly in a period that's interesting where we have access to the whole history of, of, of recorded music. Um, one of the things that's interesting about that, though, is, you know, for example, in Room 21 with this vinyl collection, vinyl lasts quite a long time, but music that might have been recorded as an MP3 or some other music format even just 10 years ago might be lost, or home-burned CDs, CDRs, many of those don't even work anymore, and that might have been only recorded, you know, five, 10 years ago. All those mixtapes. Right. You know, people's curating of music. Right, right. It's all gone. Yeah. You can't, Absolutely. can't play it anymore. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think it's interesting to see how artists respond to that. Very cool. Yeah. 
Lee Tussman, thank you so much for Thanks talking much. with me. It's been terrific, and I'm re really looking forward to seeing Room 21. Great. Thanks. Bye. Bye.